Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Mike Brewer. He's the Fire Prevention and Investigations Captain for the Mesa Fire and Medical Department in Mesa, Arizona. He's a IAAI Certified Fire Investigator. That's the International Association of Arson Investigators. Uh, he's on the Health and Safety Committee for them. And he's also a contributing author for their 2018 white paper on the health and safety best practices that was released in June 15th of 2018. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting Mike uh, live in person. He was a, a scholarship winner for the very first uh, Brothers Helping Brothers Health and Wellness Conference. So he came out in the fall of 2018, and we were able to discuss this report back then. But uh, I thought it was important to get him on here to discuss these topics. You know, arson investigators, for whatever reasons, they're often overlooked. You know, they're getting exposed to the same stuff that firefighters are, but they just don't have the coverage uh, as far as presumptive, and uh, they're not doing a lot of times the same preventive measures that firefighters are now doing. So um, I got Mike on here. He was able to kind of touch base on that report and explain things, um, why they did things, um, how they're doing things, and what's coming down the road. So uh, without further ado, here's uh, Captain Mike Brewer. All right, Mike. Welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic, Jim. How about you? I am tired, but I, you know, I just told you a minute ago. Uh, that's what I get for working overtime and not saying no. It's my own fault. <laughs> but that's our, that's our general nature. We we burn the candle at both ends and then light it off in the middle just for fun. It's true, but you know what? Uh, you, I'm excited because I get to talk to you and I get to talk about this subject that just. It doesn't get enough attention as it probably should. So uh, I just want to kind of jump into it if you're ready. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, you know, a couple years ago, actually, uh, the day before my birthday in 2018, so on June 15th, that means my birthday is June 16th, in case you want to write that down and send me something next year, um, <laughs> you had the, the, the white paper come out for arson investigators, the Fire Investigator Health and Safety Best Practices. All right. We did. And, Oh. And and yeah, you were part of uh, the health and safety committee that actually put this on. Yeah, so I, I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. And I, I met some folks that were on the health and safety committee for the International Association of Arson Investigators. And they were looking for some folks that were motivated in um, kind of pushing this message. And for the longest time, fire investigators have been essentially forgotten when it comes to personal protective equipment and wearing the proper respiratory protection um, compared to firefighters. So that was kind of the direction that the executive board of the uh, IAAI um, kind of tasked us with. And I am, I am one of many on that, on that committee, but uh, I do commend all of, all of the members of the committee for working on the white paper and, and taking a hard stand uh, on something that has been a very hot topic in the last couple of years. Yes. You, you say forgotten. I would agree with that or even just neglected. But I think there was a few actually different areas in a fire service that has been, you know, looked over. You know, we kind of concentrate just on the line, line firefighters, but we haven't spent a lot of times with the volunteer firefighters, the wall land firefighters, the female firefighters, and, and our arson investigators, which – and I know that kind of the light bulb has gone off and we realized, hey, we need to spend some more time and, and attention to this. Um, 
But even with that being said and studies, you know, starting, it's still going to take a while to come out. So what you developed in this white paper um, is extremely helpful for at least in the meantime until we even get more information. Yeah, that's true, Jim. It, it gives you a very baseline guide of, of what is the best practice to help protect yourself and your family. Um, and, and the elephant in the room is cancer. So that's that's what the focus of this has, has been, is to reduce the carcinogens that we are exposed to, um, also the health and wellness and mental health aspects of the job that firefighters and fire investigators deal with across the country and the world. Um, times are changing. Things that we've never talked about at the kitchen table are now being talked about, and uh, we're solving the world's problems over coffee. But the, the true elephant in the room is cancer and the latency period. It's not, you know, the things that we're exposed to today aren't necessarily going to kill us today or even tomorrow or next week. It could be 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. And we don't know the latency period of every chemical known to man and when it's going to actually turn into carcinogen or uh, carcinogen exposure is going to turn into a cancer diagnosis. So it's a very sliding scale. Um, and here in my own department here in Mesa, Arizona, we've had multiple members that have been um, struck down with cancer, uh, one of which passed away. And so I'm very passionate about this. And uh, it kind of gives me the fuel for the fire, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. You know, and I, I think another before we even dive really kind of deep into this, um, I think it's important to note that for a lot of arson investigators, a lot of them are civilian or even not even besides that different states and provinces have different policies for their presumptive cancer. And a lot of times arson investigators aren't included. It's usually just firefighters. And I know like for you example, you're, you're a firefighter, you're a captain, um, but you're also doing an arson investigation. So that's, that's, you know, with that being said, you're actually covered under your presumptive law. But your prevention is so important because in a lot of cases, you're going to be on your own if you do get diagnosed. Jim, that, that's a great point. So I am a sworn fire captain. And so in Arizona, we do have a presumptive cancer law. And that's actually going through um, the state Senate now because even though we do have the presumptive cancer law, there's folks that are still fighting for those benefits, which is sad but true. Um, and we did have a Senate ad hoc committee um, that I was fortunate enough to go and testify at on behalf of the civilian fire investigators, because my team is comprised of civilian fire inspectors that are also fire investigators, and they are very clearly not covered under our Arizona presumptive cancer law uh, for firefighters and police officers. It, it only covers our sworn members. So I was able to testify and and, and ask them to please consider adding our public sector fire investigators that are civilians into that law for coverage. Um, once again, that's still going through committee, so we'll see how that plays out. But you're correct that there's a, there's a ton of folks out there that are not covered. And even if you are covered, you should still be doing everything you can possibly do to prevent uh, those exposures because... Even if you're covered, it, it's not a happy and, and good life to live going through chemotherapy and radiation treatments. Exactly. You know, and, and, and I'm sure you've seen, you've come across this throughout your career. For whatever reason, and I don't know the reason, but for whatever reason, it seems like 
once the fire is out, people believe that the danger is over. And that's why a lot of times you see arson investigators, they go in there and they're not wearing anything, any PPE, any SCBA, any breathing. I mean, just nothing. And they justify it because the fire's out. But we, we know now if, because there is studies out there with, with research that has plenty of information, that environment is not safe. Jim, you're you're 100% correct. We're a we're a hard-headed group of folks. Uh, we're all type A personalities, and we have that until you know it, it happens to one of us or one of our own. We have a it can't happen to me mentality, you know. And there's nothing in the modern home or or modern structure that is essentially natural. So it's all oil byproducts of some type and when it burns it produces so many toxicants that you can't e- we can't even measure all of them in fire smoke so it's safe to say that there's there's truly nothing better than an scba to protect your your body um, especially from the respiratory exposures um, but we also have to worry about absorption so in 2016 when i took over this program i started fire investigations in 2010 and I was fortunate enough to work with some very experienced folks, but I thought I was being extra safe and they looked at me like I was crazy, but I was wearing an SCBA and a pair of bunker pants with a t-shirt on in fire scenes. And, and my mentor was in normal blues with no mask, no nothing. And thank God he's still alive and, and, and has been fortunate enough not to be diagnosed with cancer. But he has even joked with his family, it's not a matter of if, it's it's probably a matter of when. So with that being said, I think we, we need a cultural change, uh, not only in the fire investigation community, but with firefighters across the, the country and across the world, just based on the byproducts of combustion that are produced in today's modern fires. Nice. So this report, going into this report finally, I know I've talked around it now for a few minutes, it's kind of broken up into three areas, the, the before the incident, the during the incident, and the after the incident. So, you know, what you really talk about in the before incident is just making sure that you have policies in place. What are some, what are some of those policies that you believe arson investigators should have? Or even if they're just for firefighters, they have, you know, an extra category for investigations. So, Jim, like I told you several years ago, when I started this whole whole deal in 2016, I took over our fire investigations program and uh, our fire captains, our firefighters, our, our, even our chief officers, we started to implement wearing a Tyvek suit and SCBAs and rubber boots and EMS gloves into our fire investigations. And as we do in the fire service, uh, there were a lot of folks that made fun of us and asked us, you know, what is it? Is it a hazmat call? What's going on? And my answer was yes. Actually, every fire is a hazmat scene once the fire has been extinguished because of all of those byproducts of combustion and everything that's being off-gassed. So in order to avoid um, absorbing those, we implemented those best practices here in Mesa, and it started getting out. People would see us on the news post-fire and I was getting phone calls. Hey, what are you guys doing over there? Why are you doing this? And when I started explaining and kind of going into our case, um, they took notice. And, and it's been really cool to see the, the regional change that we've had the effect on here in the Phoenix metro area. And then um, 
being able to work on the IAAI Health and Safety Committee with this white paper, we're getting to push that message worldwide now. So it, it is exciting. And we've changed our policies. You asked specifically about policies. Um, that's that's where the the change hits the, the paperwork, as I'd like to say, um, because once again, going back to being a hard-headed group of individuals that don't like change, you know, there's two things firefighters hate. It's the way things are now and change. Um, fire investigators, even if you're a civilian, you fall into that group. And I've had people look me square in the eye that have been doing investigations for 30 years and tell me they've been fine this long and they don't need that stuff. So it, it's going to be a cultural change that we, you know, have to make across the world. Um, but this this health and safety, the white paper is is the beginning foundation of that to get this message out and and educate our, our co-workers across the world to, to do the best practices and minimize their risk as much as possible. We know that you can't eliminate the risk of exposure altogether on a fire scene. It's just not possible. You can't wear an SCBA the entire time that you're there. So you're going to you're going to inhale and ingest smoke and you're going to get dirty and we know all of those things but our point with this paper is is to push the message is do the best you possibly can for yourself and your family um i've i've seen what cancer does and uh even in my own family it's been hard man um you know my, my mesa fire family my my own family um I've, we've we've got folks fighting this horrible horrible disease and if we can do anything to prevent a cancer diagnosis that's that's what the goal is here so you know that's my mission that's the mission of the the IAAI health and safety committee um, it starts with with putting it on paper and then and then having chief officers and captains that are going to push that and make sure the people are, are being held to that standard that's on paper because a piece of paper is merely that it's a piece of paper but you've, you've got to have some folks that that are willing to step up and be the crazy one to uh, push those those SOPs and get them developed. And, um, you know, it, it may not happen today. It might not happen next year. I think I'm a good four to five years into this and, and we've made some really great strides um, here in our own organization and regionally, like I was telling you earlier. And uh, it's, it's exciting to see that. It's exciting to see an idea that actually gets traction, even though you've been beating your head on a wall for years and years. It, you finally break through the wall and, and you get the message to the right people. And then uh, you're able to to see some results of that hard work, I guess, would be the best thing, um, best way to put it. Yeah, I, I love what you just said there, Mike. Um, and, and I've seen it myself. A lot of times you'll have a department and they have plenty of policies, but those policies aren't worth anything because there's nobody actually enforcing them. There's no teeth behind them at all. So if you can have somebody, and it's usually, you know, the chief on down, you know, it starts with the top. If they're enforcing this, then, you know, yeah, they may be crazy, but they know in their hearts of hearts that they're doing the right thing for that firefighter, that arson investigator, and their families. You know, uh, they may not know it now, but but they are. So that, that's perfect what you said there, and I'm glad that what you're doing there sounds like it does have some teeth. So good deal there. So. We kind of touched on there the before the incident, and let's actually talk about during the incident because, you know, this doing this arson investigation and trying again, you said you, you're not going to be able to eliminate all the exposures, 
but you can at least limit it and try to reduce it as much as possible. But it has to be, you know, I've never done this, but just trying to take pictures, trying to collect evidence, trying to do all that stuff while wearing SCBA full PPE, that's got, that's gotta be a nightmare. I imagine. Right. So Jim, yeah. And here's my, here's my take on it. If we can do it in Mesa, Arizona in the middle of the summer, anybody can do it across the world anywhere. Um, it's not easy. It's not fun. There's no adrenaline rush when you're doing a fire investigation, like like when you're entering a fire to fight the fire. Um, you, but you have to follow those procedures and and protect yourself and not only yourself but your family um, because these these exposures have a cumulative effect. Um, and you you just have to keep the big picture in mind. I had an old fire captain one time tell me when I was in recruit school. And uh, in the fire academy, he said, it's not about saving babies and fighting fires. He said, it's all about pension checks. He says, don't do anything stupid to get yourself or anyone else killed and get as many pension checks as you possibly can and retire healthy and happy. And at the time, I thought he was, you know, kind of a clown. But now that I look back at at that advice that he gave me many, many years ago, uh, he was a very smart man. And uh, that's that's kind of what we need to do here is make sure that we get out of this career happy and healthy and and live a good retirement until uh until we're gone so with that being said um when you're on scene you you have to use the equipment you're issued you you have to you know we we work in a 20 to 30 minute work rest ratio so yeah you pack up and you you wear your suit and, you know, there's there's Tyvek, there's other brands, but they're basically the same type of material. Um, they, the, the SCBA prevents the respiratory exposure. The Tyvek suit helps prevent the absorption into our skin. Um, it's been widely uh, publicized that for every five degrees of body temperature that you increase, your absorption rate on your on your skin goes up 400 percent. And. I can attest to that because those years that I was wearing an SCBA, but I was in turnouts, bunker pants and a T-shirt, I would I'd smell like smoke for a week every time I took a shower. So I was just oozing out those those toxicants and usually had a ripping headache, you know, after the after the investigation for a couple hours. And uh, once we switched to the Tyvek suit, all that went away. Um, you know, it's not one one. Uh, size fits all and it solves everything and everyone's problems, but it sure helps. And uh, when I would come home, my wife, you know, she would obviously notice that I didn't reek of fire smoke. So those, those, that equipment's only good if you use it. And uh, like I said before, we're a hard headed group. So you have to have a good work rest ratio. You have to have good accountability for your personnel. Um, You know, NFPA 921 says that we're supposed to have either a means of communication or two people on a fire scene. Most of the time we work by ourselves. So our, our means of communication is our portable radio and we do check in when we're entering the hazard zone and we do 20 minute code four checks with our alarm room while we're in there. And then we also check out of the hazard zone with them when we exit the scene or the structure or whatever it may be. Um, that way we do have that accountability um, to maintain, you know, knowledge of where we are at all times. And we also use the police officers. A lot of times they'll remain on scene writing reports and we'll tell them, Hey, we're going to make entry. You know, you mind keeping an eye out if I don't come out in a little while, come check on me type of thing. 
And uh, they're they're usually really good about that unless they get a hot call close by and then sometimes they'll take off without letting us know. But most of the time they're really good about that. And uh, the biggest thing here is is just making sure that you are using what your what the equipment that you're provided, and then sticking to that plan. Um, it's not fun. It's not easy in 115, 120 degrees. But some days you might only work 10 minutes and have to come out. But it, you can still get the job done. You might have to change the way you take pictures. Uh, we've we've switched a lot of our camera equipment around so that we can have an outside viewfinder with a tripod and that way we can still manipulate a camera effectively with all of the proper PPE on. Nice, nice, very nice. Um, a, a few few questions. First of all, before I go into the questions, a comment, and I and I preach this almost too much, I'd say, but and I know it's generally about firefighters but obviously it, it fits for you and, and what i'm getting at is the risk management model you know we're going to risk a lot to save a lot we're going to risk a little to save a little when you guys are in this environment and you're doing your investigation the only life safety that's in there generally is you so it's as simple as what are we risking and why are we risking it so um I, that, that's just that's my comment i end up preaching it every chance i get but it's the truth you know <laughs> we're just in a home or you know some type of structure whatever it may be i mean it's it's okay it's not it's not as important as our own life and you know our you know being there for our family so I, i'm done preaching there that's that's my little soapbox um you mentioned scba use i was curious what your thoughts were on industrial scba pack so we have not switched over to those here in Mesa. Um, I do understand they're smaller and a little bit lighter, which would be nice. Um, but for us right now, we're, we're using what we have. And, and that goes back to just using what you have and making sure that you're efficient with it. Um, I do know that uh, Tucson Fire, which isn't too far south of us here in, in Mesa, um, they have gone to that for their fire investigators. And and we're looking into that and what that change would mean for our resource maintenance folks and, and all of that stuff. Um, and there are multiple other options out there. Um, I've researched and studied them all. You know, there's pappers, there's other canister type filter cartridges. And the bottom line is, is that because there's so many toxicants in fire smoke and the off gassing and and even days or weeks after the fire, you don't know what's in there. Um, and you go digging around and you can see the particles floating through the air when the sun's shining through. So, you know, it's not good for you. Um, and, and my point is, is just because you have a canister or a mask on and you can't smell it doesn't mean you're not being exposed to it. So the, the best and true only protection for your respiratory tract is an SCBA with your own supplied air. And whether that's an industrial SCBA or a firefighting SCBA, um, that's that's definitely going to be the my best recommendation and the best practice to to uh, maintain your your airway and your airway health. Um, it's one of those things where once again you got to use it, you got to get proficient with it, um, and make sure that that you know what to do in the event that it that it does malfunction. Luckily, we're not in an ideal age, so you're not going to immediately uh, die if you pull your mask off like you would in a structure fire potentially. Um, but 
it's something that you have to be familiar with. You have to get used to wearing it. Your center of gravity changes. Your ability to do things changes greatly. Um, but you have to, you know, practice. It's one of those things where if you if you play in training like you do on game day, you're going to do well. Exactly. You know, I was just thinking when you were saying all that, we might want to just take a moment and explain the differences between the traditional firefighter SCBA air pack and these industrial packs. You yeah, want to big, touch on that? Yeah, the biggest difference is size and air volume um, and weight. So they're not as big, they're not as bulky, they're not as heavy, uh, which is an advantage because it does give you some some better mobility and um they're not as heavy, so it's not as taxing on you physically, um, but they do have a smaller air capacity so that you can't be inside as long. But like we were talking about, we typically only work 20 minutes, 30 minutes maybe. Sometimes it's only 10 minutes depending on weather conditions and how you're feeling. If you didn't hydrate the day before you were on call, you know, our investigators are typically on call for a week at a time. So if you don't stay hydrated or maybe you catch three fires one night, and then the very next day you catch another one in the morning and you haven't had time to recover. Um, you know, we try to help each other out when that happens, but it's one of those things where it's a, it's a variable. So the smaller, lighter weight definitely can, can help for your longevity in the, uh, in the environment. And it makes it easier on your body, which is better for you health wise as well. Nice. Um, I wanted to touch on something else with you. This is, and I saw this firsthand when I spent uh, some time in Saskatchewan last year. So I worked with uh, eight different departments, and I talked to an investigator at all those departments, and I and I found that they were kind of doing stuff just a little bit differently than we do here in the states. And what I mean by that is they they'd have the fire, they knock out the fire, they make sure that uh, you know, they do whatever overhaul was necessary, but at that point they would actually board up the houses or whatever the structure may be. And they'd give it a day or two before they actually unboarded it and did the investigation. Um, have you ever heard of anything like that being done in the States? Um, no. So typically in, in the United States, as far as I know, most fire investigations are, are being conducted immediately after extinguishment once you're given a fire under control um, by the incident commander. So we're typically in there when it, it may not be completely extinguished. It could be just, you know, smoldering materials for the most part. Um, but because we are wearing a Tyvek suit, it does have to, you know, we're not wearing the traditional turnouts and, and protection that a firefighter would wear. So it does have to be a, basically a cold environment. Um, for the most part, every now and again, we do find things that are smoldering and then we'll, we'll either take care of it or call an engine company back out to take care of it. Um, but I have not heard of anybody in the United States um, boarding up a scene and then coming back later. Uh, with that being said, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to change your PPE level. Um, you know, Phoenix did a study many years ago where they, uh, they did 16 fires and eight of them out of the 16 still had detectable levels of either CO or um, formaldehyde or HCN post-fire environment. 
and then three of those out of the eight were, were above normal exposure limits. So once you dig into it and you start getting all those particles in there, like I said before, you don't really know what you're even going to be ingesting. So um, back to my, my token statement of just because you can't smell it doesn't mean it won't kill you. Um, it won't kill you today, but it might kill you 10 or 20 years from now. So the best thing is just to have good PPE best practices all the time, whether it's a, a warm environment, a cold environment, or kind of a hot zone um, immediately post-fire extinguishment. Okay. Um, now, after the incident, kind of moving to that section, um, this really, from when you look at the white paper, it falls in line with really best practices for firefighters. So kind of at that point, you've had your exposure, and now you've got to clean your gear, your PPE, and yourself. So you want to kind of touch on that for me, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we definitely stole a page from the playbook for, for firefighters and decon and hazmat. Um, once I once again, I said before that a, a fire scene is basically a hazmat scene post-extinguishment of the fire. So we brought those over, um, those, those protocols and standard operating procedures across the, the party lines, if you will, um, into the fire investigation world so that we are cleaning our gear deconning ourselves and doing it in a manner that we're not exposing ourselves why we're doing it um and it that's a big change that's a huge change um like i said before my mentor typically wore normal blues and then when he left he would get in his work truck or his personal vehicle and drive home and never give it a second thought and throw those contaminated clothes in to the laundry basket with his family's clothes and that was just normal operating procedure back then. Now we've, we've changed that um, and we're changing our habits to help reduce our exposures to, to all of these different uh, toxins and carcinogens that are out there. So are you like uh, after, after you have a fire, are you returning back to a station and, and kind of just like a firefighter taking a shower uh, washing your PPE, washing your, your clothing and, and a, a washer at the station, or are you still taking any of this stuff home at all? So for our, our fire um, investigators, they decon as best they can on scene, and then they have the option of going to any of our 20 fire stations here in Mesa to take a shower and decon, or they can go, uh, they can go home. Um, they are still washing their clothes at home, but we recommend that they do that separately from any other clothing that's that's at their residence and then run a bleach solution after they wash their contaminated clothes. The big benefit is, is that because we have instituted these best practices, 99% um, of the time, if I take off my, my blues, my fire shirt, after I've been in a scene with a Tyvek suit on, I can't smell smoke on my shirt. So that tells me that those particulates aren't getting through. Um, we're using the Tyvek 800, which is a, down to 0.3 microns. So there's not a lot of particulates and soot that's getting through that, that's landing on my body and my clothing. Um, so it, it's a it's a huge difference compared to what we used to do in the past. Do you, do you guys have like take-home city vehicles? So we do have vehicles um, that they take home when they're on call. And so we do our best to make sure that those are kept very clean. Um, the original vehicle that I inherited uh, when I took over the program in 2016, 
it, ha- it just reeked of fire smoke. I mean, it was terrible. So we actually, we had two vehicles at the time and they both reeked of fire smoke. So we had those deep cleaned. And then from that point forward, we maintain um, basically a clean cab concept, which we're also instituting on our firefighting operations side where nothing contaminated comes into the cab. So we do promote that you uh, bring a second set of clothes. And even if you don't shower up, at least change post-fire fire scene investigation prior to getting in the vehicle. Um, most of the time, a clean shirt's pretty easy to swap in and out of. So we do promote that. But keeping that cab clean and keeping your, your gear and your tools outside of the cab so that you're not breathing all of the off-gassing that's coming off of those um, is, is extremely important. Has there, Mike, has there been any discussion about the possibility of when you're able to get a new um, investigator vehicle that you, you actually would switch to a pickup truck? So we did. We, we ended up uh, switching. We have four um, F-350s that have a toolbox bed on them. So we are basically clean cab at this point, and we've got uh, those about okay. a little year ago. Um, but even then, you know, it's one of those things where you got to make sure you keep your windows up, you park uphill, upwind, try not to leave the, the AC running and soaking in all the carcinogens in a heavy smoke environment. Uh, most of the time it's fairly warm here, but every now and again, it is cold and you'll get those temperature inversions where you get a big commercial fire and the smoke's just banked down to the ground and, and you can't get out of the smoke for blocks and blocks. So you're kind of stuck in it. And in the in the event that one of our vehicles gets contaminated, the the department has identified that that's not good for us. So they will support us getting it deep cleaned and sent out to get it cleaned, and they'll do the upholstery and all of those things. Um, but on a daily basis, it's up to us to keep that clean and make sure that it you know we don't have it contaminated. Um, you know, I commend our our fire chief Mary Camelli. You know, she has been on the forefront of this and she helped us um, institute all of these changes. We have a a cancer carcinogen reduction committee that we're working with, with our operations assistant chief. And so it's, it's something that's really taken hold. Like I said, we've been talking about it for years and everybody, you know, there's folks that that are fighting these diseases. And uh, so I I commend her on her leadership at that level and and getting this here in, in my agency um, going as far as we've been able to, to go with it. And like I said before, my mission is just to help prevent anyone else from having to go through what we have here in, in Mesa Fire Medical and, and me personally and my own family with cancer. It changes, it changes your life, man. It changes everything. Um, it's one of those things that once you go through it, it, there's life before cancer and there's life after cancer. But while you're fighting it and while your family or family members are fighting it, that's all you're focused on is fighting it. And, you know, you don't you miss out on all kinds of different activities that you would normally do, vacations that you would normally do with your family. It it takes away everything that's that's fun and good. And that's the only focus is helping whoever that person is fight. Exactly. You know, um, you guys are clearly being great role models when it comes to this. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, other departments kind of follow your suit, you know, follow your lead when it comes to this. Cause you're right. If you're able to do this stuff with the temperatures that you have, then really anywhere they, you know, they, you should be able to do it now. And here's another question I have point of clarification, if you don't mind, uh, cause I'm just curious, 
What are you considering cold? As far as a cold scene? No, 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 no. A cold temperature. Oh, a cold temperature. In my in my head, I'm thinking 60 degrees, and you're like, oh, I got a winter jacket on. Oh, that's funny. So that's a good point. Um, when I when I was fortunate enough to come back there, and and you guys were gracious enough to let me come to your um, health and safety and cancer uh, in the fire service conference. I think that was October of 2018, and and I brought shorts and t-shirts. So. It was a little chilly for an Arizona guy, um, but uh, this morning was like 35, so that was considered cold for our, our neck no, of the woods. That's, that's, that's cold. I'll, okay, I'll give it to you on that. I just was... But it's not very often. Like It's probably going to be 75 for a high tomorrow. Today's going to be a high of 55. So we, we have very um, high temperature swings out here in the, in the desert, and then northern Arizona Northern Arizona is legit, man, because it gets cold up there and it stays cold for a long time. Um, Arizona has pretty much every climate you can imagine. So you could be up in the in the snow and the trees and the pine trees, or you could be down in the desert, or you could be at the sand dunes or the beach at some of our, our desert lakes. So you wouldn't even know that you weren't in the ocean, except the lake's not as big, obviously. That's, we're that's yeah. Here. That's you got You have that all four seasons, you know, throughout your state. I have that in a week here in Ohio. So <laughs> I was walking around in a t-shirt yesterday, you know, February. So it's just, it is what it is. Um, yeah. I digress though. Going back to this report, I want to touch on a few other things real quick. Absolutely. Um, what, when this came out, what was the, uh, feedback from the arson investigator community Did they? Were they on board with it? Were they like, uh, this ain't happening, no way? I mean, just kind of where were people at? Well, Jim, it's it's like any any other big change in any fire department across the country. Um, there's there's those that are 100% for it, and they're on board immediately. There's a, the, the middle group that's not really sure, and they're looking at the other guys to try to figure out which direction they should go, so they're kind of on the fence. And then there's the, the guys that are on the far right side that that are just absolutely opposed to it so you know you have your 100 percent in your middle group and then the 100 percent knows and somewhere in the middle those those fence riders start trickling one direction or the other um but in this case there's really no good argument against it is it uncomfortable yes is it not fun yes but there's really no good argument as to why you wouldn't want to protect yourself from exposure to carcinogens and toxins that are that are on a fire scene for a fire investigation. It goes back to your statement earlier. What are we risking and why? I mean, the risk management model is clear for firefighting. Well, the risk management model for us as fire investigators is also clear, at least it is to me. Why risk it if you don't have to? Exactly. Nicely said. Um, you know, and I, I have to imagine, because I've seen the kind of, I want to say, the beginning of this firefighter cancer um, awareness, you know, going back to really 2006. And I've seen where it was a fight to get, you know, it was taboo at one point, but it was it finally started becoming acceptable. We were able to talk about it and actually do stuff with it so on the fire side of things i think we've been pretty proactive and i imagine you guys just are just a little bit behind but it's still 
it, it's, it's going to get there. It just needs a little bit more time for you to catch up. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. I think, you know, in, in 95, when I first started my fire career as a volunteer firefighter, there was no SCBAs after the extinguishment. I mean, it, in some parts of the country, they weren't wearing SCBAs at all, even during firefights. So as time went on, you know, for me personally, I never would have made it back in the old days because my airway and, and my body just don't like fire smoke. So my eyes would burn, my lungs would burn. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't a positive experience for me. So I would wear an SCBA to protect myself from, from that, not really knowing all of the things that I was protecting myself from, if that makes sense, right? Because there's so many chemicals in fire smoke, you, you just don't know what's in there. So as, as time and culture changes in the fire service, you know, initially when SCBAs came out, nobody wanted to wear them and they'd stay on the truck. And then, you know, time as time goes on, people start making that change. So I think, like you said before, being a good example um, and, and, and helping those that are interested, I'm, I'm willing to talk to anybody, email me, whatever you want to do uh, about the changes that we've been able to make. Um, because like I said before, I want to help anybody that I possibly can to make these changes to help prevent them from having to fight this, any of these exposures or diseases that, that this can cause. Uh, one thing I want to do for sure, Jim, is encourage people, if you've never put in a public input for an NFPA uh, standard, I, I encourage you to do that. NFPA 921 and 1033 are four fire investigations. That's kind of our Bibles. And, uh, you know, put in those public inputs when that public input period is open and do that for any other NFPA um, standard that you're interested in changing, because that's if you can get it health changed at that level. And it's a trickle down effect through that throughout the country, throughout the world. When they see what we're doing here in the United States, people take notice. Um, and that's one of those things where. Once it's down, like we talked about policies, if it's in a book nationally, then it has a little more teeth than it's just in your your normal SOPs. But it's one of those things. It's it's a standard document. It's it's the gold standard for fire investigations uh, and firefighting across the world, essentially. So get involved, get, you know, use those public input oppor opportunities when you have a chance. I've talked to a lot of firefighters and a lot of fire investigators, and believe it or not, many of them didn't even know that you could do that. So it's one of those things that we just have to get that message out and, and you have to, to educate your folks and let them know that you, they have that opportunity. Yeah, there's there's an absolute lot to the uh, NFPAs. Uh, I'm kind of learning that firsthand now, you know, taking part with the 1585 contamination control. So it's uh, it's interesting how they say the process, uh, you know, how the process works. It makes me think of the uh, 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 what's that? Uh, kind of nostalgia show on netflix about the toys and the movies um can you help me out with that mike uh, i remember that one yeah uh, but there's all right they talk about legos on one and they talk about the system how everything has to fit the system and nfpa is to me just like that that's what i've witnessed so far um anyway i digress somebody i'm gonna as soon as i get off the phone here with you i'm gonna figure out what the heck show i was talking about uh, <laughs> um danny Weiss. Um, one last thing about kind of the, after the incident, are, are you guys doing any type of exposure forms now? 
So, Jim, we do. Um, and this goes back to your point earlier that our civilian fire investigators across the United States and across the world, um, you know, they're not covered under that sworn uh, firefighter presumptive cancer laws. So um, I have not heard of any laws outside of the United States that apply to that. Maybe they exist. Um, and if they don't, I'm sure that the, the folks across the pond will be pushing for that. But uh, the, the thing about it is, is if you don't have good documentation, just because you have a presumptive cancer law doesn't mean that you're going to be covered. And here in Arizona, we're fighting that. Um, and our, our own president of our professional firefighters of Arizona was recently diagnosed with testicular cancer, and it, it falls under that presumptive cancer law. So, you know, this, this illness can strike anybody, anywhere, at any time. And uh, so we do a very good job of, of writing down our smoke. We call it a smoke exposure, but we also write down any other exposure to any other um, smoke or hazardous materials. And we're able to do that. We have a um, Zoe is our program that we're using on an iPad for our, our uh, patient care reports. And they've been able to build that into that so that if we go even on a medical call and let's say it's into a residence that's full of cigarette smoke, the, the crew and the captain have the ability to go in and document that exposure that they were in a house filled with cigarette smoke for 20 minutes or 10 minutes, whatever that time frame is. Um, so that applies that smoke exposure and, and um, exposure report period does apply to um, events beyond just normal fires. And and some of that um, evidence or proof will be very important down the road in the event that you do have a cancer diagnosis and either you're not covered or workers comps fighting your claim. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that's happened here in Arizona where a firefighter was diagnosed with a cancer that sh that was covered under the law, but they still had a, a battle on their hands legally to get the uh, insurance coverage that they, sh they should have had right off the bat. Um, so I think just like an EMS report, document documentation is key. Um, and good smoke exposures and exposure reporting for yourself and each of your each of your investigators is is very important to do from this point forward. And we we were fortunate enough to be able to go back and, and document those things as well for some of our other folks um, that have fought cancer. So, uh, but yeah, just to to, to your point, um, keeping good documentation is is very important um, in the event that you do have a positive cancer diagnosis. Let me let me build on that too, Mike. Um, you know, just like a fire report or EMS report, if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. That's the first thing. Number two is, and, and this is kind of my own viewpoint, these exposure forms are your receipt. You know, just just to have that just in case. You know, you need to have proof of it. Have your receipt. So, but yeah, right on, Mike. I'm glad you guys are doing that. Um, and just another random note. Um it, that show finally came to me. I finally re remembered what it was. Um, <laughs> the the toys that made us, and there's also a show called The Movies That Made Us. So it's pretty pretty good stuff. They go in depth. Uh, I don't know. It's a little nostalgic. But uh, let me ask you one more thing about the report, and then we'll get to maybe some more fun stuff. Um, is there, you know, this report now has been out for a uh, year and a half. 
and uh, a little over that, and I know it took a while to even put this together. Is there any talks about updating it or doing a sequel or building onto this? Uh, is there has been any discussion at all through the committee? So um, funny you should ask. We're working on the second edition right now. Um, and I have a confidential draft that I, I can't release any information about, but we are um, updating that and working diligently to get that out, um, most likely sometime this year. And uh, we are trying to include some of the things that, you know, we had to draw a line in the sand at some point and say, this is what we're going to publish. But we, we recognize that fire investigator health and safety, uh, mental health is very important. So we are trying to implement those things into this uh, second edition and um, maybe given a little more teeth to some of our recommendations as well as uh, for what best practices would be for PPE and then updating it with with graphics and whatnot. So that that is um, that second edition is in the works and uh, we are looking forward to getting that out this year. That's perfect. That's great news to hear. That was Break, breaking news. You heard it here first. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. Um, by the way, uh, for this report that we keep referencing, where can our, our audience members actually locate this report at? So it is on the IAAI website, um, and it's the IAAI Health and Safety Committee Best Practices White Paper. Perfect. All right. Now you ready to uh, have some fun? Let's do some of these uh, Rain Up 25 questions. All right. Sounds good. All right. So here's the deal. I've got 25 questions. They're all, you know, different numbers, one through 25. Just give me a number and I'll, I'll shoot that question to you. If it's, uh, I'm going to do this though, because I, I feel like I need to switch these up again. Or I've realized there are certain numbers that people always pick. It's just kind of a weird thing. But anyway. <laughs> All go, right. go ahead and go. Let's see how you do here. Uh, I'll pick my first employee number, which was 22 in the department that I started out my fire career in as a full-timer. So number 22. All right. I actually, I actually asked this question to uh, Frank Lee from FDNY last week, and he decided not to answer it. So let's see if you'll answer this. Okay. <laughs> I know that's that's a good opening line, right? Like, oh, shit, here we go. Um <laughs> What's the craziest or most out-of-character thing you've done? The most craziest or out-of-character thing that I have done? I think I'm going to take Frank's lead. That's probably a, a, a best unanswered. Oh, all right. You could tell me off the air. <laughs> it, sound, it sounds uh, not PG-rated. Hey, so. When we grew up, there wasn't social media, so just saying. This is true. Yes. Uh, the closest thing was AOL Instant Messenger. Yep. Where, so where you had to... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to on that one and just uh, God bless that that wasn't in, in uh, service on social media back then. All right. You can tell me after we go off the air here. <laughs> All right. Well, then pick another number. All right. Let's go with number 11. <laughs> this, see, this doesn't seem too PG. Is there ever a time in which farts are not funny? Um, I just went to Disneyland for the first time with my family, and 
in an enclosed environment on a roller coaster or encapsulated ride, they're definitely not funny. I disagree, but that's, I, wasn't there. <laughs> I always think they're funny. Anyway, all right. Uh, at least that's what I tell my boys, which my wife doesn't like. But Right. <laughs> What's another number? Uh, let's do number 25. Do you have a special place you like to visit regularly? I do. We're, we're very fortunate to have a cabin in northern Arizona, and uh, we like to escape the city and go up there and just relax and uh, spend time outside and fishing and hunting and doing the things that we enjoy to do out, out in the outdoors. Very nice. That's That's got to be a great way to decompress. Yeah, that's our sanctuary, man. Um, my wife's in the mental health field and, and specializes in trauma and substance abuse with kids. And then uh, I do what I do. So we definitely um, utilize our time up there wisely and uh, enjoy just the, the peace and quiet and kind of reset our our uh, reset our computer, so to speak, and and uh, get away from it all sometimes. That's not, you know, it sounds actually, uh, ironically, that's, that my place like that is kind of Sedona. Oh, so nice. Not too terribly far, but I try to do the same exact thing out there. Yeah, Just Sedona's get awesome. A, get away, you know. Yeah, definitely. Be one with, be one with nature. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all the red, all the red rocks and, uh, uh, alien stuff they have there too. Right, right. <laughs> All right, let's get you out of here with one more. We'll pick another number. Uh, lucky number seven. See, that's that's one of the ones everybody always picks, but that's okay. Because I'd be interested if you actually even had one of these. What was your worst job interview? My worst job interview? Probably my first interview to try to get a fire job because I was so nervous. And I think I just rambled on and, and I don't know that I ever answered any of their questions. I think I just shotgun affected it because I thought that I knew what they wanted to hear. So I didn't really talk about me as, as uh, and who I was as a person and what I was bringing to the table. I think I just had diarrhea of the mouth and, and probably um, did not impress them clearly enough because it, it took quite a few times before I actually did get a fire job. So I'm going to I'm going to go with my first fire interview as the worst job interview I've ever done. Well, clearly you've, you know, gotten a lot better at interviews. So cause <laughs> I had I had a really good time with this. I, I thought it was very informative on, again, a subject that is unfortunately kind of looked over right now. So, you know, I, I hope that uh, there are some investigators out there that listen, kind of take something away and they can kind of implement and and you know, put something to use for their own and, and therefore they'll be better off and the trickle effect will be their families better off and their fire communities better off, you know, just by taking a little dose of prevention. I had a fire chief. He was my very first fire chief that hired me and gave me a shot. And he always used to say an ounce of prevention was worth a pound of cure. And, uh, I that's know a, a Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin quote, right? Yeah. Yeah, he got that. He got that, uh, Ben Franklin, and I think that uh, that's true to this day. So I, I hope I hope that somebody out there listening is willing to to call or email me. They can email me 
uh, michael.brewer, B-R-E-W-E-R, at mesaaz.gov. And uh, I'll get back to you as quick as I can with uh, any questions that they might have. So thanks for having me, Jim. Perfect. Thanks for uh, coming on here. And I'll need to see you here live in person, whether it's in exotic Beaver Creek, Ohio, or maybe I make the way out west, uh, hang out with you and get some In-N-Out burgers. All right. That sounds good, man. <laughs> All right, brother. Thank you. And uh, and take care. And I'll talk to you soon. All right. We'll catch you later. All right, bye.